The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Sport Fox. Here are your headlines. The World Health Organization has failed in its basic duty, says President Trump, as he withdraws U.S. funding, accusing the group of having a political agenda. Health Organization. Congress, China contributes China roughly 40. Meaning, whatever it is, China was always right. You can't do that. You can't do that. The U.S. death toll sets a single-day record, but Wall Street closes higher amid hopes the broader pandemic pressure could be easing, with some states considering reopening before the end of the month. The IMF warns the global economy is facing the worst downturn since the Great Depression. The chief economist of the fund, Gita Gobanov, tells us, however, that the financial system is in a much better shape than it was back in the 1930s. On the economic front, I think it really makes a big difference that there are lenders of last resort, that monetary policy is proactively able to come in, ensure sufficient liquidity in markets, that fiscal policy is able to play a major role supporting firms and households. Three more Wall Street giants prepare to report earnings after provisioning for bad loans weighs on JP Morgan and Wells Fargo's bottom lines. And Jamie Dimon predicts the US economy will not reopen before summer. A rational plan to get back to work is a big thing to do. And you know, hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later, but it won't be May. You know, you're talking about June, July, August, something like that. America's ailing airline sector gets bailed out. The U.S. government agrees to a $25 billion package to help the biggest carriers after the coronavirus pandemic brings travel to a near standstill. U.S. President Trump has announced he will cut funding to the World Health Organization over its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The president said his administration would address the WHO's role in, quote, severely mismanaging the coronavirus crisis. He began criticizing the global health body last week, repeatedly accusing it of being China-centric. The U.S. is by far the biggest donor to the WHO, giving it more than $400 million a year. That's now on hold, though, with President Trump also arguing the WHO was too slow to act. The delays the WHO experience in declaring a public health emergency cost valuable time, tremendous amounts of time. More time was lost in the delay it took to get a team of international experts in to examine the outbreak, which we wanted to do, which they should have done the inability of the WHO to obtain virus samples, to this date has deprived the scientific community of essential data. President Trump, who has also been feuding with governors over who has the authority to lift lockdowns, says he is close to completing a plan to end the coronavirus shutdown. He struck a more conciliatory tone at his press conference, saying he will work with local officials to lift restrictions, some possibly before the 1st of May. President Trump adding that he is fine with governors making their own decisions about how and when to open their states, a day after saying his authority was total. And to Wall Street, uh, some hope that reopening 
tightening of states soon could be at least a, a mild pause for these U.S. markets as we face a deep recession. Now, the uh, Wall Street action you can see is picking up on some of that optimism. 2.4% in the green for the likes of the Dow. Also gains for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq. Worth noting, though, that we had U.S. bank earnings yesterday and investors, when they were given that glimpse firsthand of the damage from coronavirus, did send stocks lower. JP Morgan and Wells Fargo. So perhaps that is a warning signal for investors as we wade through what will be a very difficult earnings season. But uh, for the major averages, uh, certainly decent performance. Uh, the third pause of session four for the likes of the Dow. Apple having the most positive impact on the Dow. And when you talk about just how far we've dropped, we're now just 19% down from the all-time highs on the Dow, even less when it comes to the S&P. So it's 16% down from those highs. It tells you how much territory has been recaptured. I want to talk you through some of the major moving stocks on Wall Street because there were a couple of stunning stories that are worth reporting. Amazon, for instance, we've seen, despite stocks across the board cratering and trying to claw back some of those losses, Amazon has tracked to a fresh all-time peak. We saw in session yesterday after this bounce of about almost 5.3%, recovering all of the losses from the pandemic, but also now above the 1.1 trillion market cap for the first time ever. You've seen the stock rally about 20% so far this year as investors bet that the increased demand for Amazon delivery purchases will be positive alongside the cloud computing products. Apple, a report crossed too that we are seeing a recovery in those Chinese iPhone sales as that economy gets back to work. Apple stock are bouncing as a result. Microsoft very much poised at the forefront of remote working with all those software solutions. That stock continues to perform. And Tesla, it actually saw an upgrade from a broker. We saw an upgrade from the likes of Credit Suisse from underperformed to neutral. It says Tesla has a competitively more edge now in this transition to electric vehicles as the coronavirus disruption will make it more difficult for those large uh, legacy automakers to balance the long-term shift towards electric vehicles. So a very strong rally of 9% in that stock. Now, U.S. futures, let's see how we're setting up more big banks reporting today and more earnings to weather, as you can see. What we've got uh, red now marching onto the boards for Wall Street early on. Let me talk you through what's on the ticket today. Bank of America, Citigroup and Goldman Sachs are due to release results today. The latest Wall Street giants in the reporting line. All this after JP Morgan and Wells Fargo both posted steep losses in the first quarter, missing expectations as the banks increased their loan loss provisions to help cushion the blow from the coronavirus pandemic. Well, JP Morgan said net income sank 69% during the period, adding it was bracing, bracing for a, quote, fairly severe recession. Meantime, rival Wells Fargo reported an 89% drop in profit, with the lender saying it was facing, quote, unprecedented times. Speaking to CNBC, Wells Fargo CFO John Shrewsbury warned that economic conditions in the U.S. could continue to deteriorate. There's some idiosyncratic things that have already happened, but elsewhere we're really just imagining and foreshadowing what might happen as a result of an elongated economic trough and thinking about what that means for credit reserves. We, I think we all do our best to capture them in real time, but um, you know, if the economy is going to remain closed uh, into the summer, through the summer, etc., then presumably things could get worse. Meanwhile, JP Morgan's CEO Jamie Dimon said many U.S. workers may not be able to return to their jobs until June, July or August, adding the economic impact could be felt for much longer. No models that have done dealt with you know, GDP down 40 percent, you know, unemployment growing this rapidly. And that's one part. There are also no models that have ever dealt with a government 
which is doing a PPP program, which might be $350 billion, it might be $550 billion. Unemployment, where, you know, it looks like 30 or 40% of the people going on unemployment look higher income than before they went on unemployment. So what does that mean for credit card or something like that? Or that or the, the government is just going to make direct payments to people. So this is all in the works right now. The company is in very good shape. We can serve our clients. And we're going to give you more detail on this, but it's happening as we speak. I know my colleagues have also been scrutinizing those earnings yesterday. And Jeff and Steve, what jumped out to me that there was a lot of uh, just guesswork at this point, what the damage could look like down the track. Well, there's certainly a lot of experience on Wall Street around guessing credit losses given the financial crisis. But the provisioning $6.8 billion at this point, who knows whether it's enough and just how much that buys those U.S. banks, uh, the likes of J.P. Morgan, the first out of the gate, of course. Absolutely, Karen. I think it's very difficult to disagree with that statement. The um, consequences of this uh, financial crisis or what is a uh, health crisis as it turns into a financial crisis at this point are still incalculable. But what we do know is that the Federal Reserve has stepped in with a very significant backstop. The Federal Reserve has also made it very clear that it is going to support just about every market that needs support, despite the howls of protest that we see from people like Jeffrey Gunlack, that they've overstepped the Federal Reserve Act by stepping in to hold up the high yield market. But I think what it tells us is that we are only perhaps a whisker away here from more substantial support for the banks, given that the uh, financial system still very much relies on the banks as a mechanism for distributing the government's largesse. Um, for my part, I, I thought already the parallels between Europe and US in this crisis uh, and the seeds are being sown for another European banking crisis. Quite frankly, uh, when JP and Wells Fargo write off 10 billion in loan loss provisions, they are getting ahead of the curve. And as Karen, you rightly say, we don't know the end number. But the fact of the matter is, this is the same situation we saw in the great financial crisis where the US banks get ahead of the curve. They realize their loan losses early uh, and the Europeans drag their feet. Listen to this that I found on a, a document. Normally, banks should set aside their loan loss provisions to take account of the likelihood that some loans may not be paid in full. In practice, and this is about in Europe, most euro area countries accounting provisions are typically made once the loan has been impaired. For instance, once interest rate uh, payments have been missed, i.e. behind the curve. That was an ECB document from 2004. That's why there was such a problem with European banks in the last 15, 20 years, because Europe realises the loss is way late. So they changed the rules back in 2018 to IFRS 9. Now, I know we've had arguments around the set before about when to provision, but already you've got this quote from an FT article, an ECB governing council member. The problem with the new accounting rules, i.e. IFRS 9, is that they increase provisioning in a dr dramatic way, i.e. yes, of course they does. That's the whole point, that you have greater provisioning so you don't carry zombie loans for decades after, as we did in the great financial crisis. So I'm afraid to say I'm already seeing the seeds in the fact that JP and Wells Fargo getting ahead of the curve with their loan, curve with their loan loss provisions. Europe is balking at the rules. I see the same old fudge happening in Europe as well, even at this early stage of the economic crisis. Where there are similarities, though, around the revenue side, we've seen that in Europe over the last decade, the challenge in trying to find revenue. Now, what was reported... Uh, from JP Morgan, uh, the bank likely produced about 55.5 billion in net interest income this year. That compares to an estimate of 57 billion uh, from the impact uh, that they saw previously. Now, what we've also seen, the bright spot, and I question 
and whether this bright spot remains to be one for these U.S. banks. We've seen all of this activity on bond markets, equity markets, and that's clearly been a win for some of these big investment banks. Now, J.P. Morgan saw a 32% increase in revenue to $7.2 billion. That broke down to about $5 billion in bond trading, $2.2 billion in equities. But already we've started to see some of that volume come back a little bit from some of the higher ranges. And you wonder, once all the activity has happened where investors are flooded back in, repositioning, selling stocks, buying stocks back, do those volumes drop again? And suddenly we see that trading boost start to taper off for some of these banks in coming quarters. So an important aspect of the differentiation between the two kinds of banks that we have been discussing on on programs, Karen. Clearly, those that have some capital markets business will have benefited from the uptick in activity. But I think it still this issue of uh, how real are the arguments for taking on risk at this point when it, it does feel a, a little as though what we're seeing is is peak euphoria around the support function of the Federal Reserve and the US government at this stage. I think there are massive question marks over how long this up rally can last at this point, given we see this continued deterioration in the job numbers. And as Steve was pointing out, there will be this waterfall type effect where ultimately we see credit card loans uh, uh, credit card uh, defaults. We see auto loan defaults. We see um, uh, small companies walking away from their obligations to the banks. Uh, there is a whole lot more to play out at this point. And I think the problem will be that um, those banks that feel they may have benefited in the short term from this uh, uptick in uh, speculative activity probably won't benefit over the longer term from that. And Jeff, I take your point. Uh, we don't know how a pandemic plays out, but we certainly know how a credit event does after the financial crisis. Let's bring in Ali Miramadi, who is investment director at GAM. I just want to ask you about what the banks have told us effectively, Ali, because we've seen markets chased higher, certainly off the lows, but there was nervousness around the likes of JP Morgan and Wells Fargo when we got a real close up of those numbers yesterday. Does that give you a sense that investors have been overly optimistic getting back into stocks at this point? Morning. Um, well, I think it's, there's, there's two questions. I mean, the, uh, I mean, if we start start with the banks, and then and then if you like, go on to the overall equity markets. I mean, the comments um, from both uh, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo yesterday seemed, you know, very appropriately um, broad. Um, you know, we don't know, um, uh, we don't know, and they don't know um, that all the implications of this going forward, and consequently, they're, they're very sensibly increasing provisioning. Um, I mean, what's very clear from the financial crisis, and, and exactly the same will happen here is that the, prior, the priority for regulators is clearly the systemic risk of the financial system. It's not um, uh, investors in shares in banks. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, we, we know that both in the States and in Europe, um, the banking sector has come into this in, of course, a much better shape than it was um, in the financial crisis. There are many important differences, like, clearly, between the two events. I'm going to point out, for example, in Europe, and so it's, it's, it's almost hard to imagine this, um, um, you know, in April, but of course, you know, it's only a small number of months since Unicredit, um, you know, because the, the, the Italian bank was given permission, um, uh, you know, by the ECB to start buying back shares. Um, you know, and BNP of France was about to apply to do the same. Of course, now we're in a situation where, you know, European banks, most, most banks around the world simply aren't allowed to pay dividends outside of, of the United States. And I think that really just tells us that regardless of valuation, it's very difficult to make a case for investing in banks here. Given you know the, the banks themselves and the regulators um, um, simply don't know at this point 
just you know how how there's a huge rise in unemployment, damage to the consumer, and all the rest of it is, is going to have on 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 their balances. Ali, I, w- I want to get into that because what we are seeing investors getting back into stocks, they're trying to make a judgment on whether we just write off uh, this quarter, or maybe write off the next quarter, and, and maybe you get some sort of valuation on stocks as you look down the track, particularly if you're a longer term investor. But what the banks gave us, and these I'm using the banks as an example because they are the first to report, what they're showing us is that they're trying to gauge the direct impact now, but down the track, they can't guess the second round effects. The stimulus may help out for a little bit, uh, all of those grants and loans that have been effectively doled out uh, from the administration may help, but they may not compensate for second round effects. What does an investor, a long-term investor, do with that threat? Well, the way that we think about it, and it is more broadly, but it applies to the bank as it does for everything else. You know, if you invest for, you know, the, for, for the long term, you know, three, five years and longer, we, what we need to think about with, with, with as much confidence as possible is what cash flows are going to be like in, in the coming years. Um, the difficulty for uh, the obvious difficulty for banks is it's extremely difficult at this point to forecast, you know, what profitability and which may be the wrong word, of course, that will be this year and next year. You know, in order to enjoy um, returns for the long term, you need to survive. Now, there's no question about it, but the bank, you know, the banking sector, as discussed all around the world, is in a much better shape than it was 10 years ago. I don't think it's a at this point, it's not a systemic issue, but it certainly is a very likely issue for people investing in the shares of these banks. So. From our perspective, what we do is go through the portfolio and indeed, you know, company, other companies we're looking at uh, and see, you know, where, it, you know, where is our degree of confidence um, um, unchanged or only marginally worse? Um, uh, and where are, where's our degree of confidence really, you know, decline substantially? And unfortunately, when it comes to, you know, financial shares, um, you know, at this point, it's very difficult to make, um, um, you know, even really quite short term predictions, never mind ones to the medium and long term. I mean, it's, it's very clear, you know, the, 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 I mean, it's already obvious to us during this crisis, we've been reminded of the very important fact that equity is the risk, the, the highest risk bearing part of the capital structure. Um, and when you're the highest risk bearing part of the capital structure of complex financial instruments like, like banks, you know, then you're, you know, then, 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 then you're, you're, you're clearly right at the cutting edge of, of, of risk taking. And it's a question for people, of course, whether they want to be at that point. It seems very, very early in this, uh, in, the, in this ongoing crisis to make that decision from our perspective. Ali, you're a, a three to five year investor. And uh, one of the questions I think that keeps coming up and we're grappling with is whether all this stimulus that is being thrown at the financial markets now will be inflationary or deflationary going forward. And of course, that is an important question to ask because it then raises issues about whether you buy equities at these current levels in the belief that they will be one of the asset classes that benefits from inflation once we come through the other side of the health crisis. What's your call on this? Well, from, from a macro perspective, I mean, certainly, I think the, 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 the near-term prospect, I think, is, is, is much more disinflationary um, than, um, than inflationary. There's an argument, and, and it's a, an interesting argument, of course, that with huge government stimulus, um, you know, down the track, and, and, you know, some people argue governments will try to, you know, to, to, to deflate away their, the enormous debts they're going to they're emerge with. Uh, there's an argument that the inflation may pick up down the line. However, given the very large rise in unemployment and the fact that, you know, that the textbooks will tell us you get a diminishing return on extra, extra ever, sorry, every extra dollar of debt that, that, that you add. And of course, we're adding huge amounts of, uh, of debt all around the world right now. You know, our, our view is that, that, that for now, it, it's far too early to start thinking about a return to inflation. The, um, you know, Ali, Sorry. we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for your comments this morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Ali Miramadi with us, Investment Director at GAM. Steve, uh, let me toss it back out to you.
Yeah, thanks very much indeed. The last 24 hours in the UK have been dominated by the economic round. The concerns as flagged by the Office of Budget Responsibility that the UK could face its worst recession in 300 years. We'll give you more after the break. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. The UK's Office for Budget Responsibility has warned the country could face its deepest recession in three centuries this year due to the coronavirus. Well, Steve, we got swamped in numbers yesterday, not just on the economic fallout, but also on coronavirus deaths. Yeah, absolutely. The, the twin crises, Karen. I mean, if, if I may indulge me, we'll concentrate on the OBR just for this one moment as well. I mean, the death toll continues to be horrendous. So 778 yesterday, uh, 12,107. That's just the hospitalised numbers now. And of course, the ONS, another um, st- uh, statistics body, just pointing out that it could be a lot worse when you consider non-hospitalised related coronavirus deaths, if that's not convoluted. So back to the OBR as well. I mean, sometimes I had, have to add dialogue and editorial. Sometimes the numbers speak for themselves. Let's do the numbers. UK economy faces a quarterly plunge of potentially 35%. A quarterly plunge of 35%. Borrowing could rise up to £273 billion for 2021. Uh, That is a deficit of 14% of GDP. 14% 14% of GDP as well. Government spending could be up 88 billion. Total revenues down 130 billion, a uh, fall of 15% as well. And 2 million plus people could be unemployed. We could have an unemployment rate, albeit temporarily, uh, of 10%. Well, the Chancellor of the Exchequer was suitably concerned by this uh, potential reference uh, point rather than an actual forecast. It's a reference scenario from the OBR. This is what Rishi Sunak had to say. These are tough times and there will be more to come. As I've said before, we can't protect every business and every household. But we came into this crisis with a fundamentally sound economy, powered by the hard work and ingenuity of the British people and British businesses. So while those economic impacts are significant, the OBR also expect them to be temporary, with a bounce back in growth. And I think it's very important that Rishi Sunak uh, pointed out that the OBR expects this to be temporary. Of course, it all depends on the length of the lockdown as well. But they did stress that government inaction, i.e. without spending that extra money and getting that deficit up so much to offset those lost revenues and to support businesses across the country, without this government action, uh, inaction would have created a much higher economic cost as well. It comes at the same time that uh, Sakir Starmer, the new leader of the opposition, having taken over from Jeremy Corbyn, is asking the government 
government to just give us some ideas uh, on what the end of the lockdown strategy could look like as well. People have talked about regions, people have talked about different age demographics, different industries as well, because the economic cost is absolutely huge at the moment. And Keir Starmer saying, well, look, just show us how you think we're going to come out of this. The government, for their part, said if we start talking about the end of lockdown at the moment before we've reached the peak, uh, this could be confusing for the British public. And as you mentioned, Karen, it comes at a time when there is lots of pouring overs of the data. Uh, and I just give you one number as well from the week ending 3rd of April. Uh, non-hospitalised deaths uh, could be as much as 50% higher or the, the COVID related deaths could be around about 50% higher uh, because, of course, the way that uh, the reporting is on a countrywide basis compared with the hospitalised uh, COVID related testing as well. So real question marks on both the economics and indeed the health side of the equation. Steve, what's unusual now is that investors just don't react to wild numbers. I mean, you, you had this warning yesterday and you saw barely any movement in the pound, no movement in gilts, and the stock market just down nine-tenths of a percent. It feels as though because everybody else is reporting very wild numbers that this is just passing through as though it's a, an average reported number. It, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, given all the numbers we've seen over the years and how markets tend to react to bad news. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there was a bit of underperformance in the UK market yesterday. But as you say, the pound was pretty steady. I think compared with the European and US indices, there was a, a bit of a risk on in some of these markets, which the, the, the UK indices didn't enjoy, partly because also uh, there was very stock specific issues. We are very energy heavy with the heavyweights, BP and Shell in the FTSE 100. And of course, oil prices, well, they've fallen actually and from their high around about 34 bucks on Brent to sub 30 at their lows yesterday as well, because people are just saying, yeah, we get what you've done, OPEC. We get what you've done, Russia and the US. Well, we can see what you're trying to do on the supply side. But the demand destruction, as exemplified by the IMF, as exemplified by the OBR here in the UK, is so huge at the moment. We can't find a bid for our product uh, at the moment. So you're, you're, you're cutting supply, but there is still vast amount of demand. So I, I think you're right, though. There is a degree of immunity from the, these horrendous numbers we're seeing. But by and large, the economics don't lie. Karen? It's a little bit like the financial crisis when the countries were losing AAA status and investors just shrugged their shoulders because everybody was losing it. Uh, but down the track, let's see how that differentiation plays out in economies. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.